We are continuing our series called The Way of the Early Church, and we've been looking at the book of Acts and gleaning different eternal spiritual principles from the book of Acts, because we are not the first century church, but we serve the same God that the first century church served. And there are eternal truths, spiritual truths from that day that we can apply to today and grab hold of the deeper things of God. And so we've covered a whole bunch of different things. Last time we talked about the great persecution that broke out after the stoning of Stephen. This persecution uh, was kind of talked about in Acts chapter 8 as a major hinge point in the history of the Christian church regarding the Great Commission. They were staying in Jerusalem. They were happy to go to church and have a big mega church with 19 staff members and thousands of people. They were very content with that. They had a fantastic small group ministry where people were eating in their homes and taking communion together. They had all kinds of amazing things going on and thousands of people had come in. But Jesus said, that they were to go and make disciples of all nations, not just hang out in their comfortable church environment. And they were hanging out in their comfortable church environment, and they needed a little kick in the pants to get going. And it doesn't specifically say that, but I'm thinking the persecution was that nice little kick in the pants to get them out of their comfort zone. Their comfort zone became very uncomfortable when people started killing them. And so out they went, and on one day, thousands of missionaries left Jerusalem and went out into Judea and Samaria. On one day, they'd all been gaining the spiritual power and strength, and then they got sent out, and they went. And amazing things happened. Philip is the one who's focused on in Acts chapter 8. He was one of the feed the widows guys, and he's scattered as everybody flees, except for the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But thousands of people fled, and they preached the gospel. They performed miracles. Amazing things happened all over the countryside as they were sent out. We get the highlights of Philip's ministry ministry and you know amazing things happen but this was happening all over and there are some lessons that we learned from the persecution last week the first one was obey god when things are going well seems like there's two types of people there's the people who are happy with god when their life is going well and then when they face hardships they're mad at god and then there are the people who when things are going well they forget about god and then when everything falls apart they cry out to god And we want to be the people who, when things are going well, we love the Lord. And when things are falling apart, we cry out to God. We don't want to be the complacent people that when things are going well, we let our prayer life slide. We let our devotion slide. We let our service to the Lord slide. We want to be people who are devoted in the good times and who trust God in the hard times. First thing we learned was obey God when things are going well. We must also be part of the Great Commission. I find it amazing that the apostles didn't focus on the Great Commission when the resurrected Christ told them to do that. In Matthew, the beginning of the book of Acts, it's clearly stated over and over, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, tells them to do this, and they just get busy with church stuff. And we also must be about the Great Commission. We must be about missions and evangelism and spreading the gospel. We must not be complicit with darkness because we're comfortable and self-centered. We want to obey God when things are going well. Another thing we learned last week was that God knows what he's doing even when things are hard. 
There's no record of any believer being mad at God when the persecution came. Philip didn't go to Samaria and cry. Philip went to Samaria and said, God is so awesome. I know you're Samaritans, but let me, I just can't control myself. Let me tell you about the Lord. And they responded and they got saved. And there was amazing evangelistic meetings going on. So good that Philip was renamed Philip the evangelist and incredible things happened, but they weren't whining and crying. You know, I mean, they mourned for Stephen, but they weren't mad at God. They weren't crying about, God has abandoned us. They weren't like that. They still believed and trusted God. God knows what he's doing, even when things are hard. The Great Commission was facilitated through this very difficult time. Sometimes we go through hardships, and we see that God is able to do something great through that. Third thing, last week, the gospel is for everyone, not just people like you. Philip went to the Samaritans, and we'll talk about this more as we go through the book of Acts, but the Samaritans, so not only was the early church forced out of their comfort zone by the persecution, but they had to welcome and include people they hated. So they're forced out of their comfortable church world, and they welcome in and embrace hated people. The gospel is for everyone, not just people like you, and not just people you like. The gospel is for everyone. Embrace that, understand that. All right, this week we get into Saul's conversion. So let's pray. We'll look at new material here this morning. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for our holy scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, that we don't have to just try to figure it out on our own. Hallelujah for that. But you put your law on our hearts by your spirit, and you guide us by your holy word. Lord, open up your truth for us today. We each need something good. We need a touch from you. We need to to gain something spiritually from you. And I know you're able to do that by your spirit for each one of us, right where we're at, whatever we need, you you can bring it into us. And so, Lord, let your truth be known in our hearts today, specific to each individual. Let it come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 8. Do you remember Saul? He's a tough, tough character. Acts 8, 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. This is Saul who will become the apostle Paul. He's there at the stoning of Stephen. He's guarding everybody's coats and he's cheering them on. It's like he's watching the Super Bowl and his team is winning. He's like, woo Stephen is dead. woo He's all excited about it. It's kind of a dark, yucky thing, but he's cheering on the stoning of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Saul began to destroy the church. So this guy takes it upon himself to end Christianity. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So not only were they looking for Christians in public meetings, they're going from house to house and dragging people off into prison. And it's not going to be good enough for him to do that in Jerusalem. He's going to chase the believers where they've been scattered. He's a tough guy. Now, I've got a few um, personal thoughts on this. Try not to get mad at me. I kind of think that Saul was a good guy, really. But he was just pointed in the wrong direction. 
He's trying to destroy Christianity. He's cheering on the death of Stephen. He's hauling people from their homes because they put their faith in Christ and putting him in prison. He's going into the countryside. He'll be heading to Damascus here shortly to go get people and haul them back to Jerusalem so that they can be put in prison and face trial. He's doing really bad things, but I think he's a good guy, really, but he's just pointed in the wrong direction. He's zealous for God. He's determined. He is willing to put his faith into action. He's a go-getter, man. He just thought that trusting in Jesus as the Christ was a destructive heresy that he needed to eradicate. He's just pointed in the wrong direction. Have you ever met somebody, known someone who's like that? A really a good person, but just pointed in the wrong direction. Their heart isn't evil. They just are walking down the wrong road. You met people like that? know people like that. Some of them are thugs and criminals. Some of them are skeptics and unbelievers. Some of them are intellectuals and professionals and business people. Some of them have done really, really bad things like Saul. I don't care who you are or what you've done. The truth is that God loves you and he has a plan for your life just like Saul. I've heard people say they're too far gone. You got two options with that. Either you're believing a lie because you're not too far gone. Either you're believing a lie or that's just an excuse. You're not too far gone. I don't care who you are, what you've done. God has a plan for your life. He loves you. He's able to bring you out of that just like Saul. Now, I got saved before I read the book of Acts. My now father-in-law gave me a Bible to read. And uh, I wasn't a believer. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a basically an atheistic home, not anti-theistic, but just we were scientific people. We weren't God people. And so we learned the scientific method and we watched Nova and that sort of thing. Carl Sagan was big in our house, but uh, we didn't learn about Jesus or anything like that. I just want to tell a little bit about my story. Uh, if you If you haven't heard it just briefly. So when I was uh, in college, this man asked me if I was a believer and, you know, just kind of reached out to me and gave me a Bible to read because I thought, well, if God is real, that would be good information to have. You know what I mean? Like I didn't care if God was real or not. I didn't have an existential crisis that required to be loved by an eternal being. You know, I, was, I didn't care, but it would be good information to have. So I thought, well, let me go check it out. So I started in Matthew. He put me in the book of Matthew. I got to Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, which I didn't realize was the Sermon on the Mount, but now I do. And Jesus is speaking, and he says, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you will receive. You know, that passage for he who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And I thought, well, that's a fantastic verse because I can apply that to the scientific method. If I seek and find, I know it's true. If I seek and don't find, I know it's garbage. Simple. I like the I like the yes no stuff. I don't like this you know fluffy who knows what's going on thing. Uh, this is the short version. So one night, you know, I decided, well, I'm just going to find out. So I dropped my girlfriend off after work about midnight. I'm driving home, and uh, I think, well, let's find out. So I prayed my first prayer. 19 years old. I said, Lord, there's this guy. He gave me a book, and he says it's your book. And in it, it says, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And I'm knocking. And as I'm driving down the road, I see up in the sky, two hands appear like this, folded together. 
and they opened up like that. About three seconds that changed my life. And I slowed down, and it was a scary experience for me. I didn't tell anyone for a few years. I wasn't sure what to do with that. It wasn't something that, that warmed my heart. It was something that shook me. And I had to figure out what was going on. You know, like, how is this even possible? It was difficult. But I came to know that there was a God that loved me enough to reveal himself to me and that he had a plan for my life, just like Saul. And it's the God that loves you and has a plan for your life, just like Saul. So let's read about this Saul and his experience of conversion. Acts 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here he's going out, you know, he's left Jerusalem, he's going to chase down the believers in these other communities. Now he's on his way to Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. That must have been a shock. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Is this a beautiful moment between Saul and Jesus? Get up, get into the city. You'll get more instructions when you need them. Verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul, the destroyer, has an experience with Jesus and he is traumatized. He is blinded and he is so affected by this. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. He's just like, whoa, he's having a crisis moment. Some conversions are like that. They're a crisis moment. My life didn't get easier when I got saved. You know, I had like the anti-conversion experience. My life was fine. You know, I'm going to a private college. I got a nice road in front of me. Then I get saved and everything falls apart. You know, because none of that matters anymore. Who cares? You know, what difference does it make? So I disengaged. It was a crisis moment that came after. And that's the same here with Saul. His conversion is a crisis moment. It brought him down. He didn't hit rock bottom and get saved. He got saved and hit rock bottom. Now, the best conversion that you can have is when you just choose to believe in Jesus by faith as your Lord and Savior, where you just choose that. I want to I just quickly go to John chapter 20 and see where Thomas, the apostle, had the opportunity to do that, but he missed it. Now, Jesus has risen from the grave and the Apostles have not quite figured out what's going on yet. So they aren't sure if he's alive or not. But he shows up, Jesus shows up at a prayer meeting that the 10 are at, but Thomas is missing. Judas, of course, is gone. So it's the 11. Thomas, however, is not there. The other 10 are there. And that's where we pick it up. 
Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. So Thomas, the apostle, says, you say Jesus is alive? Baloney. You people are all hallucinating nutcases. He's denied the resurrected Christ. How does this work out? A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. There's something very important to notice here. Thomas has denied the resurrected Christ. Is he still welcome in the prayer meeting? Yes. Is he still part of the group? Yes. I imagine they're thinking, hey, it's Thomas. He'll catch on eventually. He's always been a little stubborn with things. He'll catch on. But they gave him some grace to not believe, to make fun of them, basically, to say, yeah, all 10 of you are nutcases. Unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Don't feel bad for taking that blessing. If you have not seen and you believe, Jesus describes that as blessed. You know why that is? Because you can just trust God and go forward. You don't need to have things proven to you every step of the way. You don't have to be drugged there by God. My process was slow and painful because I needed I needed evidence. I needed all this stuff. I couldn't just accept things by faith. I didn't know how to do that. But if you can just trust God by faith and go with him, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, accept the scriptures as holy, inerrant word of God, and just go with God. If you can just do that by faith, there's a great blessing because you can just go forward and you don't have to fight all those skeptical, uh, unbelieving battles. It's a tremendous blessing. Do not feel bad for taking that blessing. And I mean that. If I could go back, I would just believe by faith and need no evidence at all. Because then I could just go. I wouldn't have to fight all those battles. Took me years. Just believe and go forward. All right, back to the Apostle Paul. Three days, hasn't eaten, hasn't drank anything. He's blind. His life has changed Enter Ananias, a great trusted man of God. Acts 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. So Ananias is a disciple in Damascus. Who is Saul going to go get to haul into prison in Jerusalem? Disciples in Damascus. That's Ananias. He's one of those people that Saul was going to go get. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So, who did God go to first? Saul. He goes to Saul and says, Ananias is going to come. He's going to pray for you. You get your vision back. It's going to be okay. Then he goes to Ananias. says, hey, Ananias, I got a job for you. Go pray for Saul. 
How does Ananias respond? Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. He wasn't so excited about it. You imagine arguing with a vision from God. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, don't let this moment pass you by. Brother Saul, one of the things that happened in the New Testament church, in the early church, was enemies became friends in the Lord. Brother Saul, brother was something they didn't call everyone. They called fellow believers. They called people in the fellowship. They called the ones who were their kindred spirits in Christ, brother and sister. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. God trusted Ananias with a mighty task. What can God trust you with? One time we were doing uh, an evangelistic outreach here in this area. It's kind of a regional outreach. And the pastors were meeting and we were talking about the follow-up process because you have the big event and then people fill out the little card when they respond to the altar call. And, and then they say who they're connected with, you know, what church or what people who might attend what church and then you try to connect them in with the natural flow of relationship into groups of people they already know who can mentor them and help them in their new faith and we're talking about this process of the follow-up happening with members of the congregations of the churches and as the pastors were talking about it one of the pastors just drooped his head down and everybody kind of looked at him and he looked up and said i don't have one member of my congregation that I would trust a new believer with. It's not about getting, it's about giving. Amen. If we are people who can give, if we are people who can help, I'm going to give you a tip. This is a big tip. If you've ever thought to yourself, man, I'm just not getting fed. Then you've made the transition from needing help to being someone who's to help others. Now you are to jump into doing things for Christ. That's where you will get your energy and your strength and your excitement for your faith. If you don't do that, you'll get bored. It'll be a disaster. God trusted Ananias. In the first century church, God trusted people with tasks. He does that today. Will we answer the call? Then Saul gets to work. Check this out. Verse 20. At once, this is Saul. Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Amazing. Saul gets to work right away. So what are some things we learn about the early church from the conversion of Saul? Enemies became friends. God called even the worst of sinners and God could trust his believers 
with mighty tasks. I believe it's time for us to make a commitment to the one who died that we could be forgiven. Saul the destroyer was remade into the apostle Paul. Again, you are not too far gone. If that thought has crossed your mind, it's a lie from the enemy. Unless you're using it as an excuse to not turn your life over to Christ. But it's simply not true. You are not too far gone. So Saul, the destroyer of the church, becomes Paul, the apostle. And he, he speaks the scriptures and the amanuensis writes it down. He dictated the scriptures and he, he's dictating a letter to Timothy, a young minister. And here's what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, does the Bible have to say, now pay attention here. This is a trustworthy saying, or are all the things in the scriptures trustworthy sayings? Yeah, they're all trustworthy. So that means that if it's going to be specifically emphasized that we really need to pay attention and realize this is a big deal. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying, look, Jesus loved me as a plan for me. He redeemed me. He'll redeem you. I mean, man, the destroyer of the church is redeemed, is brought in by the Lord. You are not too far gone. You are not alone, but you need to give your life to Christ. For the believer, oh, let us be like Ananias. <laughs> let us be trusted. What can God trust you with? To greet someone who needs to be greeted, to pray for someone, to bear fruit, to engage in, in worship, What can God trust you with? Let's be trustworthy because he was faithful to us and he remains faithful. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you are a redeemer, that you do not discard the worst of sinners, but you redeem the worst of sinners. Father, help us to trust in you, to know your love, that we can be filled with joy to know that we have not disqualified ourselves because it isn't, it isn't we who qualify ourselves, but Lord, it is you. So we thank you for what you've done. Father, I pray your peace would be upon our hearts as we trust in your plan. Lord, that your joy would be in us knowing that you are well able to bring us through. And Lord, let us know your love to its fullness so that we're always full and always able to share your love with others. Lord, let it be. In Jesus' name, amen.